Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Nehemiah chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. Now this sermon title, I'll, I'll go ahead and warn you, this would have been a really great political slogan for Trump um, based on these chapters, chapters 3 and 4, and so I'll just prepare you beforehand. This is in no way a political uh, statement. This is in every way a statement out of Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. Uh, if it wasn't for that campaign and everything, the political environment over the last year and a half, this would just be a really cool sermon title, but because of everything that's been going on, I'm going to have to caveat it. So here's the sermon title this morning from Nehemiah chapter 3. All the way through chapter 4, verse 14, sermon title, Build the Wall, Take Up Arms. <laughs> oh, thank you for laughing with me. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, there is power in unity. There really is. There's power in unity. When you have a collection of people with a shared vision, shared purpose, shared mission, a lot, can get, a lot can get done. We all know the statement, many hands make light work, but many hands working hard make a lot of work, and it gets a lot of work done. It, it makes things go better. It's not just everybody work just a little bit, but if we all work really, really hard, then there's a lot of things that can be done. And if we work the way God would have us work, God's glory is seen in it. And Christians, we have some really big rallying points that unify us across churches, across denominations. We have these rallying points in the Bible, and when pulpits are, are, are when our faithful pulpits across this country and across denominational lines are opening their Bible, there are some big things that unify us all, and, and re, we can really be on mission together because of that. Um, so Christians have these big rallying points. For instance, we have the, the Gospel of Jesus. Now, the gospel of Jesus, there's only one gospel, and the gospel has to be proclaimed. It can't be lived because it's a message about a life that was lived. So you can't live the gospel, but you can proclaim that the gospel was lived in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're to proclaim that good news. And across this country, in different ways, from different passages, the gospel of Jesus is being preached. And we want to praise God for that. That God's word is being opened, and that the gospel of Jesus is being proclaimed. Praise God. We rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have brothers and sisters across this world across this world, who may believe some different things, but we're united in this very central truth that the hope of the world is found in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinners to the glory of God. We also find a rallying point in the Great Commission. We all have this rallying point that we are on mission together to see people baptized across this world and then see the nations taught all the things that Christ commanded us. We have these big pillars of the Christian faith that, uni that unify us. The rallying points. And when a group of people are unified around the big stuff, there can be really big momentum. There can be massive movement. But there is a problem, and we see it even more, I think, today with cracks we see in evangelicalism. That out there in the big C church, and when I say the big C church, I'm talking out there. We always got to be thinking in, in, in here and out there. And then when we talk about the local church, we also have to think about our own heart because it's always easier to see problems out there than in, in, in here. So we always want to be more sensitive or uh, as sensitive as the Holy Spirit would have us be about what needs to be corrected from the inside out because it's always easier to see problems out there. But some of the problems out there is that much of evangelicalism 
um, sadly, are wavering on these big rallying points. The gospel of Jesus, the Great Commission, and the third big rallying point is the very word of God, the Bible. Uh, what God says goes. And denominations that have historically affirmed that in creedal form, saying that, yes, by our confession, we believe in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, are today abandoning that. They're abandoning that, and they're feeling the pressure of the world, and so they're caving on issues that the Bible is really clear about, and we'll look at that a little bit later today. And so the problem is that there is massive wavering on those fronts. Um, there is the perversion of the gospel into a man-centered message. Um, when the Bible is appealed to, many Christians feel uncomfortable with it. The Great Commission is now, sadly, being looked down upon as some sort of imperialism or colonialism. And evangelism itself is being questioned because how dare we presuppose that a non-Christian culture needs to be transformed. In an increasingly pluralistic world, evangelism is going to become more and more suspect. And sadly, in much of the church... You can just find it out there, get on get, like evangelical websites that used to be strong, and people are saying you know, that we shouldn't. We should sit down and have conversations with people, but don't first proclaim the gospel. And, and certainly, we, we want to talk to somebody, you know, and it won't be the weird guy that just you know, immediately meets somebody and says, you know, do you know Jesus? Because if not, you're damned to hell. Obviously, have some conversations with people, but we have to proclaim the message. The goal isn't just simply to understand pagan cultures. The goal is to see the idols in those pagan cultures burn down. So we have to start local in these rallying points. Our church, local city, local region, local wide, and rally at these rallying points. Unify about around the mission, the gospel. The Word of God. And in Nehemiah, we see that there is local unity around a shared task. We're going to see this in a metaphor form. We're going to look at this story in Nehemiah, and we're going to see how there can be massive momentum and, and massive work done when a group of people work together. They stood together, and they built something worthwhile as they obeyed God. And together, they faced opposition. They didn't have to stand alone or stand guard alone because they were in this thing together. They faced the opposition because of the glory of the mission. They weren't afraid of naysayers because they knew their God-given tasks. And so they stood together and they did the work. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 all the way through verse 14 today. So we're going to cover some ground quick. I'm not even going to actually read all of chapter 3. I'll tell you why here in a minute. All right, starting in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with the brothers and the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. Pause. Now, it's interesting to me because we see a miracle. We see a miracle right in the beginning. The, the, the clergymen are doing manual labor. It's an indictment on clergymen across this country that that's so funny. But the priests, believe it or not, were entrusted with building the sheep gate. And you know, like, all of God's people in that time were like, we definitely got to reinspect that wall after they get done with that because it's the priests, all right? The construction guys definitely circle back on that. Um, but this one verse, and we'll see it in verse 2, provides the pattern for the whole of chapter 3. 
we're going to find that certain people had tasks assigned to them, specific tasks on the wall in Jerusalem. And if you're new with us, we're, we're talking about God's people being brought, being brought back out of Babylon in three big waves. Okay, and this is, uh, first is Zerubbabel, and then now we're looking at this wave about 70 years after that first wave, or about 30 years after that first wave. Now we're seeing Nehemiah come. The temple has already been rebuilt, and Nehemiah is now rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so in verse 2, we see the exact same pattern, and next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to him, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. And so this provides the whole structure of chapter 3. The men of Jericho built, next to him, Zachor, the son of Emery, built. And so the rest of the verses, it's the exact same kind of thing. And so in verse 3, all the way through verse 32, you have the shared vision of a group of people committing themselves to a very difficult task. Rebuild the wall. You guys can read this on your own, but you can just see the pattern. If you just go and kind of of skim the next few verses, you see the exact same thing happening through the rest of the chapter. But these groups of people worked together to do the work of God, and everybody was in on it. And you've got to see the power of unity here. There's different types of people that are building the wall. It's not just the priest. It's not just construction guys. But in this list, we see fathers and sons working side by side. We see rulers working and doing their part in the wall. Rulers of the city who are willing to put their hand to the plow and do the work. They're not just the foreman on the job telling people, do this, do this. They're willing to get their hands dirty and to build the wall. You see slaves working alongside of city rulers. You see people who make perfume, and the perfumers are out doing this work as well. You see daughters working with their fathers, daughters picking up the stones and putting them in the wall. Everybody was in on this thing. You see goldsmiths working next to the fathers and the daughters. Everybody was working together on this massive, massive task. And I think it's an incredible example for any church community, an incredible example for the church today, that as they are building the wall, by God's grace, we are building the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God has been expanding forcefully since the beginning And as the Holy Spirit empowered his church to go go forth into the world, we see that the kingdom of God has continued to spread. Here we are halfway around the world 2,000 years later, and we see that the kingdom of God has advanced to here, into, into our homes, into the lives of our children. The kingdom of God is advancing not just regionally in a directional manner, but also generationally, from one generation to the next. That's why the Great Commission is not just to the nations, but to every generation, because every generation that follows us is an unchurched generation. They're growing up unregenerate, and we're raising them up, evangelizing them first, and then discipling them. The Great Commission is for all the world, and it's for every generation. The kingdom of God has continued to spread. And through the proclamation of the gospel and through obeying Jesus, we're called to baptize and teach the nations, we continue this mission until Christ returns. Now, we know, we know the Great Commission, going to all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And right before that, we find that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Jesus. And so before we get the command of the Great Commission, we find that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And Ben pointed this out in our men's discipleship in such a helpful manner. And then after the Great Commission is given is is a verse that we often forget about. And and behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. That Jesus sends us on this massive task. It's bigger than just building the walls of of Jerusalem. It's the task of discipling the world. And there's a lot of work to be done, isn't there? 
Uh, did you see the song by Lil Nas X that just came out this weekend about Satan worship? <laughs> that gets celebrated as being, you know, culturally advanced. Dr. Seuss gets canceled. There's a lot of work to be done. The nation needs to know how evil and vile that is. That man needs to know how evil and vile that is. We have this mission that's in front of us. As the Jews going back to Jerusalem had this God-given vision and mission from God to rebuild this city. And as they looked at it, we talked about it a few weeks ago, the tasks seemed monumental. The gates needed to be repaired. The walls needed to be built. And you just look at it and you think, where, where do I even start? Where do I even begin? You ever been in a situation like that before where there was manual labor that needed to be done? And you looked at it and you thought, how do, how do I even clear these dishes away? Should I just go like smash them and bury them outside somewhere or should we clean them? Or maybe for you it's laundry. Maybe it's, it's a, a, a field that needs to be cleared and there's a bunch of trees and you know that over the next 10 years I'm going to have to cut down five trees a year. But in a decade, by golly, I'm going to have a, have a field out here. But you look at a task and it just seems monumental. Or like No way that could be done. This was the kind of task that they were set out to do. And it's the same thing with us when it comes to the Great Commission. It's, this, it, it's almost like, where, where do we start? And the easy place to start is in our homes, by the way. We hopefully know that by now. It's in our homes, in our very heart. But this massive task was in front of them, and this massive task is in front of us. It happens a household at a time, a conversation at a time, one conversion at a time, one neighbor at a time, one coworker at a time, one friend at a time, as we live obediently to Jesus and then take opportunities to be uncomfortable and awkward and say, listen, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. And God's law is perfect and holy. And if, if you don't repent of breaking God's law, then there's no hope of heaven for you. And it doesn't matter if you believe in a heaven or hell or not. What matters is the truth, and the truth is you need Jesus. And I want to love you enough to have this awkward conversation. And through awkward conversation after awkward conversation, the gospel of Jesus continues to move forward, and it will not be stopped. So as they built publicly, we obey Christ publicly. We proclaim Christ with our mouths, the kingdom of God with our lives. And the kingdom of God will spread to the knowledge of the glory of God has filled the earth. And we can't control people, but by God's grace, we can be unified on the mission. We can all agree that the purpose of our life is to see God glorified through his mission going forth. And so that, that happens, that works itself out in many different ways. It works itself out as we parent at home. It works itself out as we go to work. It works itself out as we're neighbors. And it looks very, very normal. And for most people, as we've said, it, it even looks insignificant. It's just live your life and obey Jesus today. You don't have to win the world today. Just obey God and talk to your neighbor about Jesus. And that's how the world gets transformed. It gets changed one person to another. Well, this enrages some people because as they began to do this work and as they started to advance... Sandballot returns. Remember Sandballot from four weeks ago? Those who are new with us may not know about Sandballot. You'll catch on here in a minute. I'll try to help you kind of seam together these thoughts. Uh, there was a naysayer named Sandballot, and he had some cronies with him who didn't like that the work of God was being done. They didn't like that the city of God was being rebuilt. And so they began to cast accusations their way. They began to mock and ridicule and make fun of Nehemiah and the boys. And, and they just were enraged when they saw the work of God being done. So look at chapter 4. Verse 1, you'll have to just look over all of chapter 3, because like I said, it's almost like a genealogy. You read through a genealogy, and it's just the same, you know, it, it begat who, begat who, begat who, uh, and this is chapter 3. So you read through it, and you can see that 
uh, later. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He jeered at the Jews. Now, as this good work is going on, here comes wave two, round two. Sanballat comes on the scene again. We're going to see he comes again a third time. And right when you think that Sanballat is gone, and they saw it didn't work the first time, they just kept going, he comes back at it again, and we see that he was very angry at the work, and so he started to make fun or jeering the Jews. This unholy mockery. He mocks the people of God and makes fun of the people of God. Now, continue to see this as a metaphor for the kingdom of God advancing in our world today. And the people of God have always had those who have come at them with unholy mockery. You believe that? You're going to live your life that way? You're going to follow the scriptures? Don't you know the scriptures were written by man and you can't trust the Bible and blah, blah, blah? You're going to follow that sexual ethic and you're going to believe that to be true and this not to be true? What do you mean? You really believe that the earth was created in six literal days? Weirdos. What do you mean you believe that? You're going to fall. There's always been naysayers and those who have mocked and jeered. This is a tactic of the enemy, and it's an ancient tactic. The enemy just reused and regurgitates the same old tactic, tactics from Eden forward. We see this unholy mockery and the tactics of the enemy more clearly in verse 2 and 3. Look at this. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive these stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? We see that Sanballat really wants, really wants to their, their spirit to be broken. He really wants their unity to be broken. He really wants a group of people to listen to him. Then maybe the group building this part of the wall will turn their attention to Sanballat and say, he's right the work is too much. The task is too great. There's no way we can do this. Tobiah, the Ammonite, verse 3, was beside him. And he said, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up on that, he will break down their stone. <laughs> verse 4. Hear our God, for we are despised. Turn their back and their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives we see their response to unholy mockery. But let's consider a little bit further the accusations. St. Ballot and Tobiah, he, he said like that, that wall, it's burned stones. You put it back together. It's so weak. It's so futile what you're doing. It's so meaningless. A fox is going to jump up there. A fox weighs, I don't know, 10, 15 pounds. A fox is going to jump up there. And that stone wall you're building is going to collapse and fall. It's, do you not see how foolish this is, Jews? Do you not see how futile your work is? You're not only not going to get this done, you're going to build these walls, and it's going to be a huge waste of time. You're wasting your life. And they wanted the Jews to believe them. That's what they wanted. They wanted them to be disheartened. This happens everywhere in our day. We see mockery to the people of God all over the place. It's broadcast. It's on the television. It's on Twitter. It's, it's everywhere. There's a new suggestion. I, I saw that the military has recategorized. I've got I to source this out, but I saw that, the, that, that some branch of the military or somewhere has recategorized. Google this and find this. Um, evangelicals, along with Catholics, as a hate group, 
along with the KKK and other groups like that. Hostility's coming. I mean, it's coming. It's already here. Not to say it's coming, it's already here. The evil of the in crowd, the evil of the in crowd always wants the people of God to think they're the crazy ones. He wants them to think they're crazy. That's the tactics of the enemy of your soul. Where you're doing what's right, you're obeying God, you have a clear conscience before God, and then men come along, make fun, mock what you believe, what the church believes, what God is having you do, and then you start to question, maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. Maybe the world is upside down and I'm actually on the wrong side of it, or maybe I'm on the wrong side of history. Maybe I'm the one missing the boat here. And there's masses of Christians, masses of Christians, who have been convinced that they were the crazy ones. So they're trying to just fit in with those who are mocking them. I want, but I want Sanballat to like me. I want Tobiah to respect me. So they give a listening ear. Well, maybe we should just sit down and have a conversation with Sanballat. Maybe we could understand how he was hurt. Maybe hurt people hurt people. So, all right, Tobiah, why don't you like this work? You're Tobiah, Brandon. Tobiah, I just want to understand. I'm going to listen. I'm going to zip it. And you and Sandballot, in case you're Sandballot, uh, you guys just tell me why you don't like the work of God. Why, why don't you like what we're doing? And why are you making fun of us? You see how foolish that is? It's just so silly. It's so silly, but that's the tactic of the enemy is if, if I can convince, if the enemy can convince us that we are fools to the world and then make us care about it, then the work, you know, the hands go in the pocket rather than on the stone. I'm just going to take a, a five-minute break or like the Mumford & Sons singer who dared to like a conservative book that was against Antifa and then quits the band in grief. What a weirdo. <laughs> like, gosh, have a backbone for goodness sake. But that's what the enemy wants us to think. We're the crazy ones. And I don't know, like, over the last couple years, I've had to think, like, maybe I'm missing something because everyone seems to be walking in this direction, and that seems completely nonsensical. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. Like, there's so many things where, like, the, the masses are just like, oh, I'll get in line too. And, and then you're kind of like here thinking like, but I'm, I'm pretty sure 2 plus 2 equals 4. I'm just pretty sure as everybody's like, no, it's 5. Get in line. And you start to think, man, maybe I'm losing it. This is the tactic of Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, Nehemiah responds, and we need to recover. We really do. I've mentioned this maybe a year ago, but we need, as the people of God, locally, you personally, we need to rediscover the holy virtue of righteous indignation. Amen. And we need to rediscover the glory of the imprecatory psalms. And we're going to read a couple of them here because I want to, I want to see your, Nehemiah's response. Okay? I want you to see Nehemiah's response. Look at verse 4. Hear, hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. And give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. 
And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah responds, and if we just look at that response, it goes against everything we think in every way we think he should respond. And certainly we are to pray for our enemies. But there is a time and a place for us to declare, God, turn our enemies on their head. Rid our land of this wickedness. Our city has evil and vile things that they're celebrating. And it needs to end. Nehemiah says, we're despised. And may their mockery come back on their own heads. May they be plundered, captured, and enslaved. God punished them for their wickedness. And it seems odd to us in the niceties of 2021. Nehemiah and, and his people would have been very acquainted with these imprecatory psalms. They would have known the psalms of David, the songs of Solomon. And just consider, just consider a few of these psalms. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 3. We could look at Psalm 3, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, 17... 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 140, and find the same kind of psalm. And these kinds of psalms have been sung by the people of God down through the history of the church. Let's give Psalm 3 as an example. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are the rising against me, many are saying... Of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, but you, O Lord, are my shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves out against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies in the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing upon your people. God, break the teeth of the wicked. Shatter them. I, my buddy Brian said one week he was singing the Psalms and sang Psalm 3, but forgot to tell them it was a psalm. And then they were singing up there, and he could see their face as they're singing about breaking the teeth of the enemy. And they're all kind of like... <laughs> Look at Psalm 5, verse 7 through 12. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your, straight, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They make them bear, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall down by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that, the how, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover them with favor as a shield. You know, Colossians chapter 3, one of the reasons we sing the Psalms, one of the reasons I'm glad that Andy does that is because we have commands. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in their hearts. And there is a place for the people of God to sing psalms like this. Destroy the work of our foes. The message is there. Let all who take refuge. Take refuge in the Lord, but if you don't, you be destroyed. And your purpose is thwarted. God, bring down the ideas and the people that are harming your people. You put a modern spin on this. Bring down the wicked rulers. May the LGBTQ plus movement be seen for the sham that it is. May public servants who are acting like their kings be humbled and eat the cud of cattle. Remove their lampstand out of bad churches and away from false shepherds. God, may your name be glorified and your enemies vanquished. Break the teeth of the wicked. Bring revival to this land. Our personal prayers and public prayers should include prayers like that. So they didn't let the mockery stop them. Look at verse 6. Flip back to Nehemiah. They heard Sanballat, they heard Tobiah, and here was their action. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Man, I love this. I love it. You're never going to finish that wall. I, I can't believe you Jews. It's an exercise in futility. So we kept building, and we built, and we built, till the wall was built halfway up. As they mocked, they just kept building, and they made progress. Isn't it great when you're tackling a monumental task, and you step back at the end of the day, and you can see some progress? Oh, man. And for them, it would have been small victories day by day as they slowly built back this wall. Sanballat, the boys, they don't quit. They come back for round three. They actually send for reinforcements. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they plotted together to come to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion to it. You see, they came back for round three. It bothered them. It's like, the, we, I don't know why they didn't learn, learn their lesson, because they, the first time and the second time, it didn't stop them, and they saw the work actually advance. So you'd think, like, we've got to get a different tactic here. Let's just, uh, you'd think they'd just start praising them and say, man, you guys are awesome. You guys are doing a great, I don't know, uh, reverse psychology or something. But now we see this group of five, and it's not just the two, Sanballat and Tobiah, but now the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites came and they started jeering as well and they were angry. They didn't like that the progress was being made and they were afraid of the people of God. They were angry. They didn't like that this ancient city, this city of God was being rebuilt. And so they plotted against the Jews because they wanted to confuse the people. They planned to fight them and to cause confusion. Things could get physical and they planned to bring a physical battle, not just a spiritual battle, to their doorstep. 
You see that in verse 8. They all plotted together and came to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. So if confusion alone is not going to work, we'll threaten violence. And uh, that's a, a scary thing. There's so many parallels, again, with today. So many parallels. As God's people were doing the work building the wall, as we're doing the work building the kingdom, the world is really terrified of the people of God, honestly. Words are violence, right? That's what people are saying today. And if words are violence, telling people that they're a sinner, that's violence against them. Uh, let me just tell you real quick. The enemy of our soul will affirm people all the way to hell. And if affirmation is what you're after, you'll gather a group of people around you that will just affirm you and affirm you and affirm you in your sin, in the muck, in the mire, and won't tell you the truth. And the, as soon as somebody comes along that tells you the truth, you're like, toxic, no thanks. And I'll just go find more people to affirm me. Um, Jesus affirms no one. He comes to forgive. And that's why his message is so offensive, because to forgive somebody means that there's something that they need to be forgiven of. And we live in a world that can't tolerate that right now. No affirmation. Don't tell me I need to repent. I'm loved just the way I am. And there's a twist to the truth. To stay in sin. And just give me people that will affirm me. That's why a false gospel affirmation gospel is popular in some crowds. Because, you know, they're like, look, you, you were so awesome that Jesus came to rescue you. No. You were so broken. And we see how awesome Jesus is that he would come to rescue you. So there's prayer and there's action. The world is not, oh sorry, the world's not trying to physically fight us, but they are trying to throw us off. Um, they're rising against the church, plotting against her, and trying to bring confusion. That is the similarities. So we have to recognize that and we have to stand against that. And so that's what we see in verse 9. Check this out. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, I love this. Prayer and action. This is an obedient recipe. All prayer, no action, you'll end up disobeying God. All action, no prayer, you'll miss God. And you'll end up disobeying God. This is a principle seen all throughout the Bible, and it's just right here in one verse. Pray and do. Prayer and action. We see the wisdom in this verse. First, they, they, they recognize that we need something from God that we cannot provide for ourselves, even if we stand guard. We need to stand guard, but if we miss prayer, what are we standing guard for? We have to come before the Lord and pray to Him. But then if we only pray and we don't stand guard and we don't walk in wisdom, we're going to let our enemies walk right through here. Sanballat and his, his crew, they're going to come in here and destroy us. So prayer and action. And they set guard. They prayed and then walked in wisdom, which is how we should live our life. And they were doing this in light of a real threat. This wasn't a theoretical threat. This was a real threat. It wasn't threats without the possibility of something happening. It was a real threat. And we see that. In verse 10, it was Judah, it was in Judah, it was said, the strength of those, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. 
There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Pause real quick. They're, they're not denying reality. Rebuilding this wall is really hard. And like, by our, we're going to need God to help us. Like, by ourselves, we're going to need some reinforcements because we're dog tired. We're dog tired. That guy's lost three fingers. Those stones are sharp. A rock fell in that guy, and he looks like a hockey player. Three of his teeth are gone. It's hard. We're exhausted. It's going to be hard to keep this going. They were honest about the difficulty of the task. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work and stop the work. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. Now, verse 12, there's a a difficulty in translating this from the Hebrew and there's a confusion about the phrasing. Uh, the, The words are inerrant. We've had difficulty translating this verse into the English language. Sometimes the languages work work like that, where you have a language and you try to translate it in your language, and it's it's okay, does it go in this order or this order because this is such a rare word or phrase? It doesn't mean that the scriptures are still inerrant, but as we translate, that's why different Bibles that you have or different translations you have, there'll be a different phraseology in a word or a different word, something like that, because we're trying to translate the inerrant perfect, original, into modern English. So the NASB translates this a little bit differently. It says, when the Jews who live near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. And then if you look at verse 12 in the ESV, at that time the Jews who live near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Here is the point. Either it's Come on here, we need help, based on the previous verse. Or it was a warning that was going out, which would bring the Jewish people in. So they're either going, or calling, or sending summons for help. And it caused Nehemiah then to fortify the walls. There was a real threat that required real reinforcements and real help, because they were coming to their midst. They were coming upon them. They had to do something. And then, verse 13, the second part of the sermon title today, Build a Wall, Take Up Arms, comes from verse 13 and 14. Look at verse 13 with me. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked around, and I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to all the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, And fight for your brothers, and for your sons, and your daughters, and your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah stationed them in the weak spots of the wall with swords, spears, and bows. Because there's vulnerability where the wall is weaker. Where the wall is stronger... You don't need as many people guarding that spot of the wall. Where the wall is weaker, where there's damage, you have to provide reinforcements there. That's where the battle's going to go. When the enemy comes upon their foe, they're going to look for the weak spots and attack in the weak spots. Therefore, wherever the weak spots are, you have to have the spears, the bow, the swords, right there. And then Nehemiah told them, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. God is with you, and if you have to fight, you're going to have to fight. 
you don't get armed up to not use them. The Bible is in no way pacifistic. The people of God have never been pacifist. Nehemiah says, fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your wives. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your homes. Now, um, Christians have struggled with spiritual warfare. There was a day, American Revolution, which America was in the right, by the way. Great Britain was in the wrong. And there was a day where the Presbyterian ministers formed together in what was called the Black Robe Regiment. And they recognized that it was time, not just for spiritual warfare, but for physical battle. Now, we don't live in that day. We're not taking up arms right now. Like, there's no, people have been talking about weird stuff that could happen in the future. But the people of God have always been willing to die for what's right. To die, okay, we'll fight for our homes. We'll fight for our families. We'll fight for the work of God to keep going. The work of God isn't going to be stopped. And we're willing to die to see it go forward. Cultures of cow- culture of cowards can't handle that kind of stuff. They won't die for anything. And we need to be a people that are willing to die for the work of God. If it costs me my life, I will not turn my back against God. And that needs to be the mantra of every Christian, whatever it costs, all of my life, I will follow the Lord Jesus Christ and I will give my very life for him. This is what we see. They were willing to die and to fight for the work of God. Now, as stated, the lowest part of the wall was the most vulnerable. It was the most vulnerable. And as we have in the previous, <laughs> like, uh, you, you see this incredible metaphor today. Like, wh- where is the battle for the people of God today? Like, if we look at the, the, the church, global, you could look at the global church and say, okay, there's different battles in Africa than there is here in America. There's different battles for the church in Iran than, than there is here today. There's different battles for the church in China than there is here today. And those things are true. But there are real battles that we face in this country. And then there's real battles that we face locally and regionally and, and statewide as well. And you, and you start to ask, okay, like, where is the wall of the people of God, like where is the wall in the kingdom of God? Where is it weak right now? And wherever the wall is weak, like these are some areas that we need to be taking up arms, that we need to be ready for spiritual warfare, that we need to be ready to stand because the enemy is coming and attacking in the places that the church is weak. And bit by bit, the enemy comes and keeps attacking where where the enemy is weak. And if we are foolish... We'll stand guard in the areas that we're strong. And we'll run away from where the wall is, where the battle's going on, and we'll claim we're fighting for the kingdom of God. But we're not fighting the battle where it needs to be fought. And we're fooling ourselves and teasing ourselves that we're doing the work of God, when in reality we're running as cowards away from where God would have us stand and fight. And so I, I really want our backbone to be challenged. Where's the wall low? And I'm going to point out five things here where the wall is low. And some of these are consistent themes that you've heard me speak on the last year and a half. And I want to keep speaking on it because we need to be prepared and equipped to battle where the battle rages on. I don't want us to be equipped to go battle over, over something here where there's no fight. Like nobody even cares. The enemy's not even there right now. The enemy's here. And you'll know when I say it. Number one, the battle is against the image of God. The image of God. 
the more noble something is, the more seductive a false gospel it is, and the more the enemy will hate it, and the more the, the world will hate it as well. And the image of God is the most glorious thing in all creation. Nothing else has that stamp on it, but mankind does. Every tribe and tongue, any human being created in the image of God. Well, what's happening right now? Manhood and womanhood is under attack. Gender confusion and madness grew from the soils of feminism, which grew from the soil of effeminate men who were scared of women instead of loving women. Marriage is under attack. Um, that's where the law, the, the, that's where the wall is under attack. Like that, we all know this. So we don't accommodate. We don't, we don't like listen. We don't listen to them. We don't think like, no, maybe there's something for me to learn from people who are dealing with gender confusion. There's nothing for you to learn from them. Nothing. Like, we need to love them enough to say, that will destroy your life if you keep thinking that way. And not only is it nonsense, it's rebellion against the holy God. Romans 1 tells us this. And I love God too much to see his name defamed. So we're not going to listen. I'm sorry. We'll proclaim to you, but we'll, we'll not do you the service of sitting and listening to nonsense. But we sure will tell you about the God who loves you in spite of your rebellion. Remember the Lord. Um, because of this, uh, the family, number two, the family is under attack because of that. The family is under attack big time. The whole Black Lives Matter movement last year, one of their central components was to de deconstruct and destroy the nuclear family. That's been a plan for a very long time in this country. That's what Marxists seek to do. They want to remove the man so they can become, so the nanny state grows and they become the man of the household. The household's dependent upon now the government. More and more and more and more and more and more. Government, 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 government power. Incentivizing a man being out of the home. It's been happening for decades. More money comes to the family if the man's out of the home. The family is under attack. Education is in with that. Um, I want to make everyone in here sending your kids to public school. Um, listen, I love you, but I do want to make you feel uncomfortable a little bit. Okay? And as you pray, you can make the decision, and um, it, it's going to be harder and harder. And here's what I mean. If you're not vigilant, if you do send your kids to public school and you're not vigilant, okay, um, the, the numbers are staggering. Even over the last 50 years, 100 years, you can look at it. The church has been declining, okay? We've not been building disciples. And people have been walking away from the church, walking away from God. And it's just by sheer numbers and indisputable fact that public education and government schools have been doing a better job discipling Christian children than Christian parents have. It's an undeniable fact. And so if you do that, you have to be vigilant and then... When the new education reform takes into place and it's been pushed back to 2025, you really got to be praying about this. I want to plead with you. Do not send your kids somewhere that, that people are going to be telling them that gender is fluid. Don't do it. If your superintendent is Christian and all the teachers are Christian, to keep funding, to keep funding at that school and to keep their positions, teachers are going to have to be put in a situation where they either quit 
Lie or fight? We have to be aware of these things. Now, we love each other, and I realize with schooling, it's the most, I was sitting in a small group one time, and they're like the diehard homeschoolers, diehard Christian schoolers, and diehard public schoolers, and I just watched it, and it was like. <laughs> but um, you got to be vigilant. It doesn't mean that if you send your Christian kids to Christian school that you don't need to be vigilant. And it doesn't mean that if you send your kids to homeschool and you teach from home that you don't need to be vigilant. Vigilant discipleship from parents is required with whatever educational choice you choose. But be uncomfortable with public school, more and more so, please. The government is telling us what they're going to do. The family is under attack. They hate it. Um, Biden is now proposing free pre-K down to three years old. Okay, so now we're getting government indoctrination from three, year old for, three, three years old forward. And the most cognitive, the most important cognitive development stages of our children's lives, spending that much time out of the home. They want to be the home. They don't want you to have one. And we gotta stop putting our hand in the sand about it. Like, well, no, they're benevolent and they're nice and the government, they don't want to do anything evil. That's garbage. They're following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, number three, liberalism. Many are questioning God's are questioning the Bible. That, okay, these are, this is where the wall is low. This is where we got to go, and we got to like okay, take the battle to where the battle is. Don't fight over there with like you know, nobody's fighting you. You're hitting the air. Spirit, go fight here. Liberalism. Many are questioning the Bible more than they're questioning the world. You guys have heard me say that comment. Uh, we have to call attention to what God says. The wall is critically critically low at the point of inerrancy. And even the Southern Baptist Convention is wobbling on this. The historic conservative major denomination in our country is wavering on the practical implications of inerrancy of the Bible. When the Christians are embarrassed about what God has to say, they will soon abandon what God has to say. And so we have to be willing to say, you know what, I'll live and fight and die for saying, this is, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. Amen. Don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed. Number four, the law of God. Um, we call everything political and we end up being okay violating the law of God. Example, abortion. When that is called political, we forget that it's a part of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill. It's not political at all to call abortion murder. It needs to be eradicated, not regulated. We don't regulate murder, we shouldn't regulate abortion. It needs to be eradicated. Um, people convinced themselves this last election it was okay to vote for a regime that advocates openly that they wanted to expand the murder of babies. They wanted to make it more accessible. They wanted more funding to go to it. And then evangelical for Biden, evangelicals for Biden come out and say, actually, we feel very hurt that Biden lied to us. He told you what he was going to do. This is where the battle is. Social is. Socialism is evil because it violates one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. It presupposes private property. You can't take my stuff and I can't take your stuff. We voluntarily reach into our pockets. That's, that's, that's voluntary exchange. Here, if I give Brandon my wallet, I'm giving that to him. If he comes and puts his hand in my pocket, that'd be really awkward for everybody, um, <laughs> and takes the wallet, that's if the state demands everybody in here reach in your pocket and give to them rather than you voluntarily giving to charity or giving to somebody, 
You see the difference? Private property is presupposed in the Ten Commandments. Marxism and socialism, it's evil. And that's where the battle rages on right now, where Christians are being duped. That Marxism sounds like a pretty nice idea. Acts 2 and 4. Acts 2 and 4 has nothing to do with that at all. The wall is low. And then fourth, finally, or fifth, and finally, the cross of Christ. Um, this is, is most clearly seen in our conversations throughout the country and the world, um, in our conversations about race and racism and race relations. The cross of Christ is being abandoned because we're saying it is not powerful enough to unite, to unite black and white. We're functionally saying it's not enough to unite Asian and white. It's not enough to unite a Hispanic man and somebody from America. It's not enough. That's functionally what's being said. The answer to racial unity is not more racism or shaming people for being white. The answer is the cross of Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 tells us that the cross of Christ was powerful enough to unite the Jew and Gentile. And if that's the case, and in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, we're told that Jesus purchased a people from, for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And if that is true, then there's unity in Jesus. Duh! It's not rocket science. We're brothers in Christ. There's a bunch of sin in the past from a bunch of all colors of skin. All right. Forgive each other. Forgive each other's great-grandparents. Forgive. That's what God calls us to do. We owe no one, anybody, we owe no other Christian brother or sister anything except love. All colors of skin. And white dudes are terrified to say that to black people. And I'd like to say if we had black people here, many black people in our midst, that I would call them and speak to them just like I would any Asian person, just I would any person from any other color and say, we have unity in the cross. We're brothers and sisters. You are my brother, you are my sister, if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're in Iran you're, and you love Jesus, you're my brother. Remember, we follow, as obedient slaves, a Middle Eastern man. We've got to remember that, Okay. Unity is at the cross. I'll say it again. Duh. That's where, the that's where the wall is low. That's where the wall is low. That's where the battle is raging. Big evangelical institutions are denying this. They're denying this. They're saying, yeah, it's Jesus plus fill in the blank, whatever else it is. Christian pastors calling for things like reparations. It is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have these spiritual realities that are in front of us, this spiritual warfare that we better be ready for. It's, it's, it's here. And so we fight where the battle is. And we're not being asked right now to physically, like Nehemiah commanded his people to do, we're not actually even having to take up. We're, not, we're literally not going outside of the city walls of Carbondale and standing guard. We're talking about spiritual warfare we're being invited into. And Nehemiah, as he told them, even more so, we get to hear these words through the power of the Holy Spirit within us because we know what Christ has done for us, and we get to hear this. Do not be afraid. Listen, Christian, there's no room for fear. Yeah, things are weird out there. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Nothing to be afraid about. Nothing. 
don't fear anything. Fear nothing but God. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid, oh my goodness, the kids, my grandkids are being raised in this crazy world, or my great-grandkids. Have kids, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and teach them to have kids one day. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Okay, let's do a remembering exercise. Has he not been faithful in your life? Okay, remember that. You know, 10 years from now, if I ask you that question, you're going to say, yeah, he's been faithful the last decade. And then 20 years from now, you're going to say, you know, the last 20 years, he, he's been faithful. He's been so kind. He's been with me. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. I love those words tagged on. God is great, and he is awesome. And he's our God. And fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Neglecting spiritual warfare in a day like today, in any day in the history of the church, you cannot neglect to do the fighting. You cannot. You have to take up spiritual arms. You have to. If you're going to fight for your family and those who you love, you can't sit on the sidelines. You just can't. Christ is our hope. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. The battles are raging. Help us to fight where we need to fight. God, help us love people enough and help us love you more. Help us love people enough to tell the truth in love. Help us love you enough to sing in precatory psalms. Help us love you enough and care about your honor enough that we don't feel uncomfortable reading in precatory psalms. Lord, lead us. Help us to sing. I trust you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.